National was heading for their landslide, and uh, Labour were trying to build up their capacity. Next minute, Winston, big time. So what I've never told you is that I had to tell a lie to keep my financial life under control. Of the legality of your campaign so far. Oh, we think it's um, pretty legal. I am not the first woman to multitask. Jota Koto, welcome to the penultimate episode for this season of First Past the Pod. Rick, how are you? I'm good. It's the 14th episode for those who aren't yeah, keeping yeah, track. Yeah, yeah. Now, why, why, why are we deciding to wrap up episode um, the season one well, at I episode think, 15? I mean. You know, there's a tangible thing is that I'm off on holiday, and I think we referenced that in an earlier podcast for people who are regular listeners that I'm off to SLE for a bit and, and a few other places. Um, Rick, you're also wanting to use your weekends for other things. Well, it's the ski season coming up, and so I was hoping I got a season pass last year, and I was like hoping to get some snowboarding in, use up my weekends for, for yeah. other things. I think, I think we just need a refresh as well, like. The quality of the sound of this podcast has probably gone down slightly as well. So sorry for those listeners, but we... Um, We've got bold plans for season two. Yeah, season two is going to be epic. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited about Electric Boundary Review, and that's coming up later in the year, and there'll be there'll be other things happening as well. Um, and part of the reason you're going to Italy, it was, it was your dad's 70th, or soon, is, was... It was on Tuesday, my dad's 70th. Mm. Uh, took him out to dinner, which, yeah. And Where did you go? Went to this place uh, in Ara Valley, Rita. Ah, I've been meaning to go there. Which is very, very fancy. It was my little uh, birthday period present. My mum benefited from it as well because she also got the dinner. Um, so just <laughs> the, and we, we actually, I saw at, at Rita um, a person who was on a previous podcast, Anna, Anna Bradford Worrell. Ah. was at Rita as well. So had a bit of a chat, catch up with a uh, friend of the podcast. Um, I saw it at Gig the other night as well. Yeah. yeah. So um, heading over, yeah, so heading over to Italy. Um, Dad's having a bit of a 70th jaunt and my sister lives over there. As Also, she's also been on the, the podcast and there's been some interesting developments in, in Italy actually um, with the... President deciding not to swear in one of the ministers of this new government that's, that was going to be formed, but it looks like there's going to be another set of elections. So I just can't quite believe like it's, it's as if the Governor General of New Zealand's like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not going to swear in like Carbo Cipollone as the minister of social development. Something like you know, like it's it's an incredible thing. I guess the president over there might have a bit more. Um, power and that they voted on by the parliament and just having that vote it, it makes it slightly more than a ceremonial role mm. but it's quite a big step isn't it it is it is pretty bizarre to be like we're going to you know as soon as you give the the governor general that sort of power it would be um questionable if they use it like that but yeah i don't know it actually sounds like it's got a very bizarre uh, electoral system voting political party yeah I think it's, uh, it looks like it's a bit of a mess over there so we'll you know maybe we'll see in season two what's going on but we do have one more Good. episode of um, season one left and just to turn it back to New Zealand um, the focus of that last episode is going to be a North Coast by-election special and there's been yeah. 
I've, I've had some things. So we're, we're planning on doing a Facebook Live for this as well. Yeah. And I've been thinking quite a lot about the graphics that we can do for that Facebook Live. So definitely tune in to our Facebook page, First Past the Pod, um, from 7pm yeah. on Saturday. From 7pm on the dot, because results will start coming in quite quickly. And this comes to... The, the, so yeah, yeah, the advanced vote... Um, so... Votes that are cast um, in advance of election of, of election day itself are counted um, before seven pm, and they'll be released probably you know within the first half an hour to forty five minutes or so. Um, so that's when we'll be doing our podcast because it looks like it's probably going to be more than fifty percent. I'd say even you know. Probably two thirds of the votes are going to be actually cast in advance already. Advance votes are up at about three thousand, like which is double. a lot more than actually the election itself. Like normally, mm. turnout lowers in mm. a by-election. So what that suggests is either turnout is going to be ridiculously high, and/or you know, mainly people are voting in advance rather than um, going to vote on the actual day itself. Well, there's a rugby game on, so. Yeah, there's, there's a rugby game on that evening at seven thirty, so maybe people are planning in advance that they have to have the whole of Saturday, the 9th of June, to prepare themselves for an All Blacks rugby yeah. game. I mean, it is. Yeah, I wonder if it's just it's a close it's a close race. People are out campaigning. There seems to be a lot of a lot of effort going into it. So yeah, I was kind of slightly scoffed at you right before the last episode about it being a close race and suggesting that the media are making a lot of it but I mean we have apparently got the results of internal polls Simon Wilson covered that and I think you actually mentioned that in, in the last one did. Um, saying, like polling saying what 2.1% yeah saying yeah. that saying that um, Labour are actually within a cooey of winning the North Coat by-election which would be the first time since 1932 or whatever that a government has won a seat off an opposition. Um, it would also be quite a large swing. So the swing would be um, National won it by uh, 17 percentage points. So Jonathan Coleman was 17 points ahead um, of the, of Shannon Halbert, who's, who's now running again as the Labour candidate. Um, so that would be a massive swing for Labour to win that. But just moving beyond the, the day-to-day for a bit, so there was a story um, that came out around uh, campaigning in malls. Uh, yeah, so, and, so the and, whole by-election yeah. is sort of taken off, but yeah, you go... What's yeah, so this is my haunt get me started. So, I mean, as, as you may know, I um, I lived in this electorate for a while and I've got a personal connection to campaigning in malls. Um, I, I once... Uh, uh, got into an argument with security guards about why they were kicking all the students out of the mall by my high school um, when they were lingering for too long, and I was like, "This is dumb. This is a public space. They should, you know, they should be not persecuted against for hanging out here." Um, and and it's a very similar vein to what's what's happened in Glenfield Mall, where the management has decided that they're not going to allow any political campaigning on the mall premise. And I think malls are fundamentally a public space, and. They should be. You should be able to do political campaigning there. So yeah, it's it's kind of one of those stories that it's it's one of the few stories that seems to have got quite a lot of publicity about this North Coat 
um, by election, and we'll see if it becomes a, an issue in the final week of the campaign. Yeah, I feel like um, we're recording this in a in a tutorial room at Vic, and it looks like there's students lining up outside for a class. So um, on that note, should we go into the interviews, and then we can uh, do the wrap up section later. So we've got an interview now with uh, the Visa President Marlon Drake talking about the students. So this is Victoria University Wellington Students Association talking about student politics and all the fun and games there, and his dad, um, Murray Drake, who worked at TVNZ for like several decades on some interesting insights into how media landscape has changed and the coverage around that. So, yeah, enjoy. Yeah. Um, being uh, more or less retired, I started off in broadcasting about 1969 in the technical side. I was a technician. I worked in transmitter, um, worked in studios, worked on the outside broadcast section. Went overseas for a while, and when I came back, I um, um, moved into news, where I began as a studio director for two or three years. At that time, quite a stressful job. Uh, then I moved into promotions, um, and then I'm making what they call teasers and com break bumpers, as some people call them, like the things that, the, the, and also opening titles at the beginning of the program. I used to cut the pictures for those and write words and for the commercial breaks. And then uh, I got made redundant briefly and then I got called back and I ended up a story, a story producer. Story producers are a bun- um, bunch of people who work behind the scenes in TV. You'll never see their faces. And um, we basically oversee the reporters, sometimes directing the question lines when they're out in the field. Or I tended to work in foreign news like uh, TVNZ bought a lot of stuff from the BBC, um, ABC America, Channel 9, Australia, and we would get hold of the stuff and we'd top it and tail it, rewrite intros, quite often particularly with the BBC stuff, cut it down to a manageable um, duration so that we could run commercials. And then I did that till the uh, beginning of last year when I got sort of booted out the door, basically. <laughs> but uh, it was a very enjoyable uh, time in broadcasting. I really loved it. I never really got into management or anything like that because I actually like to be there, get the buzz of broadcasting stuff. Do the actual work. Why? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so this was all at TVNZ? Yeah, so, yeah, I, yeah, I'm sort of probably one of the last of a breed of people who more or less worked for the same company for a long period of time. Yeah. Was that at the Avalon Studios or was it up in Auckland? It was up in Auckland. Um, I began work at uh, TRO, a transmitter basically, in the outside broadcast section across the road from the jail in Mount Eden. It was early days. Then um, Shortland Street, like that's the real Shortland Street, not the fake Shortland Street you see the soap opera. But that's why it's called Shortland Street, isn't it? Because there's yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Shortland Street, the actual street, the actual street. But it's got it's got the TVNZ. It used to. Well, I was actually working for the NZBC when I first started the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation. When we had public broadcasting in New Zealand, um, public broadcasting and television is pretty well uh, a dinosaur. It's gone, regrettably. Um, it's very important that we have public broadcasting because, um, but TVNZ, I think, finally killed it off a few, uh, in um, 2012 when they dumped um, TVNZ7. Um, the national government, John Key and that lot, um, decided $12 million a year wasn't worth it. I think it was about $12 million a year. But of course, they could find $25 million for a, a pointless referendum, you know, a little while later. But um, <laughs> Ralph actually worked on that referendum. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm comfortable. Um, it was actually interesting. I'm talking about the New Zealand Broadcasting um, Corporation. Corporation, thank you. Um, GNS, which now 
has some of the old Avalon Studios back in the basement there. I did a summer scholarship, and it's still got all of these NZBC um, logos and things like that plastered around. It's quite a lot of history. Yeah. Oh, Avalon Studios was kind of um, at one point there was this great, you know, kind of castle of broadcasting in in the Hutt Valley there, and it was purpose built building. I think it was built about 1975. I never helped build it, but I know some colleagues of mine did. And uh, I think Studio 9 was a big studio. They used to do a lot of productions in there. Um, the news used to come, the network news used to come out of there, um, which supplied the whole country um, simultaneously. Before that, we used to have independent news programs up and down the country. Um, they spent a lot of money there, and um, I can never f- figure out why they abandoned it all. Like it's just, uh, it's kind of like a sad memorial again to public broadcasting. You know? mm-hmm. So, do you think that? And, and so, there's quite a lot of process that goes on behind the scenes, behind the headlines. I guess we say, and we talked to a couple of print journalists, or, or you know, like written journalists. Um, most of it's digital now, anyway. But you know. Um, the other week and I guess for TV it's quite a lot more involved than just writing a story isn't it what's that process like um well it's a lot it's streamlined now like when I first work, began working use we still had film and um film cameras guys would go out to well, women as well and they'd, they'd shoot their film they'd come back and then they had to put the film through a processing machine and then they'd record the audio separately on these little carts and a lot of mucking around and it was and then um, the advent of over-the-shoulder video cameras kind of revolutionised news production. And um, it was in the 80s, I think. And the first, I remember seeing an t- American TV show called Cops, and I'd never seen anything like it because these new video on-the-shoulder video cameras could record in the dark, basically. And so they could go around chasing bad guys. And the news people were doing could do the same thing. You could go out, shoot some video, come back. It was on tape at that point edit it and then put it to air in, in a really short time so the turnaround time was a lot quicker and nowadays um, with the digital stuff it's even quicker everything just gets fed straight into a server from the camera there's no tape the tape's kind of gone with the, to the dump now so um, the processing of news is really fast and really easy the reason I kind of lasted so long in television was because I, I began as a technician so I found it quite easy to adopt all these new technologies and um, but you still had people like um, the reporters writing their stories, but the people back in the office would often direct the storylines and decide which angle was uh, you know, going to be used on the news. And um, basically, a news story is around about a minute and a half with about a 10 or 15 second intro, and they try and, you know, that's formulaic in that point of view. Do you do any like election campaigns and stuff? Because yeah, when you were talking about that over-the-shoulder camera yeah. and thing, I, th- I think I remember watching a documentary about the 1984 election, which was, I think was the first where that technology was there, and it was actually like a really big TV-based election campaign, that, that one, Longy versus Muldoon, um, and that changed the dimensions. And like again, when you've got more of a 24-hour news cycle, that again changes the, the dynamics of election campaigns. Did you follow much? of those campaigns? Not, I didn't actually work on the particular campaigns but I was yeah. kind of in the newsroom and you were seeing it all go along and um, you know, covering election campaigns that's possibly changed now it's more politics than policy like I sometimes doubt whether uh, we focus enough on the policy and the coverage of election campaigns and it comes down to kind of you know politicians making stupid comments and 
clipping up and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know whether the TV coverage actually focuses on um, policy like it used to. Um, one thing I think now is I think the journalists are being cowered by the politicians. I remember uh, in, when I first started working in news, occasionally a politician would ring up the, the newsroom in, in a rage and basically the, uh, the bosses at the time would tell them to go and jump in the lake. That kind of thing doesn't happen now because the whole shebang was run by broadcasters and news people. Now you've got all these other money men kind of people in there and um, they, they may not back up the newsroom if they they didn't want to pick a fight with the um, the politicians because the way it operates in New Zealand is um, the government of the day appoints a chairman of the board or a board who of course are friends of the politicians in power. Um, I'm not saying you know I'm I'm not saying that it's quite a very subtle thing. Um, the other the other way the politicians I mean politicians don't now ring up and, and say we want you to direct a story like that they don't do that kind of thing but the way the politicians control broadcasting or say TVNZ now is they basically bleed them with, of cash and money every year um, TVNZ is expected to pay although occasionally they give TVNZ a rest <laughs> to pay dividends and uh, a lot of that money could be used recycling back into say long form documentaries or long form journalism um, and but the government is really keen to screw money out of uh, TVNZ and um, that's why they hire these kind of people at the top who are experienced money men you know they're not broadcasters okay I mean, there, I guess you could argue there is technically, and I think the one of the things Claire Curran, the current, you know, responsible minister, is trying to do in setting up this independent board that would oversee the funding for public interest journalism, which is different to the current system where it's just funded out of the appropriations and the general budget. So I think there are some moves to to improve that, but I guess it's difficult to see how that would work where it's completely independent from government. Or how do you think that could work? Yeah, well, I, so long as the it's, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just you know, I don't know how you know. Again, the politicians always they always appoint people who who are, who are friends with them. You know mm. what I mean? When I say friends, they they may not be overt Labor Party or National Party supporters, but they they get tame people who will go along with the, what the politicians want. You know. An um, interesting aspect of the news media that I find it should talk about is the, the coverage of international affairs and the selection of the clips from overseas. How does, you know, when there's so much news going on in the world, how do you make those decisions of what makes the cut in that? Um, well, it's a TV1, probably TV3, they have a, a foreign news editor and it's their job. And uh, if the story is going to affect New Zealand in some way they'll of course run stuff but um, like the stuff going on in Syria it doesn't affect New Zealand directly but it is it is a huge story and it's really you know like I'm, even somebody was saying the other day that you know human catastrophe is not even a way of describing it it's just un, you know but it, even though it's kind of just a repetition of probably human history what's going on there um, so those kind of stories, they'll run foreign stuff definitely for picture value. Like I mean, you know, mudslide in bloody South America and seeing a hillside. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of it's television's version of clickbait, um, or 
you know, the surfing dogs or panda stories or cutesy animal stories, all that kind of thing, because people like that kind of stuff. And they'll quite often end a part of the news with that. They'll start off with the heavy stuff and then they'll sort of lighten up and then run something like that. Um, and then go to the con break and then come back with a heavy story. But uh, we tend we tend to use BBC uh, and American Network, or not, we are not... TVNZ does um, it's same with TV3 and you do get a, a, an Anglo Anglo speaking world view um, from the news coverage that's, which is because we speak English so you've got to, um, you know so I guess that can't be helped mm. but cool, cool fascinating fascinating insights over among Korea mm. interesting um, should we talk about student politics? Should we move right along? Yeah. Uh, so, thanks so much, Mary. We've got okay. um, we've got Marlon Drake here. Kalidas. My successor. Yeah, I'm one of your successors. Success. You're my predecessor. One of my predecessors. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm the sequel. Marlon Drake is, uh, is it a popular name at the moment? Because like Marlon Williams, I feel he's taking off you know this gig the other week at Hunter Lounge I saw that I didn't go you didn't, um, go. You didn't get a comp ticket no I, I, I didn't want to um, <laughs> Marlon Drake is a really popular name it's a really cool I think it's a power name yeah, as well yeah, yeah. so I can thank my dad for that you're combining, for you're combining two great musicians there yeah there we go yeah. Marlon yeah. and Drake yeah yeah well you see the, the other night they did a, they did a um, they did a uh, oh, there was the, I had a potluck the other night with, yeah. with Chris Bishop Paul Eagle and Gareth Hughes they came around for, for a potluck oh, yeah, yeah. and then Mitchell uh, Mitchell Alexander he went while eating it he put Drake God's plan over the back and I don't know if that was intentional but I, I suspect it was editing what the did you did you record it? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. This is this is, this is on the AIM, it's on the AIM it show. It was a news It was a news piece. Talking about news, it was bizarrely edited. It was. I, I found very bizarre. But I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was on like the TV, on news or something. It was on yeah. News Hub. News Hub. Yeah. Right, right, right. yeah, mate. So how many people can you put like? I was just it was those three so it was Bish yeah. um, Husey and the Eagle yeah and then as well as one <laughs> so this of is Chris Bishop Paul Eagle yeah. and Gareth Hughes yes yeah. yeah. um, and um, and then also one of the one of the team from Vista as well Beth our, our welfare vice president and yourself and, five, I mean yeah, myself yeah yeah it's pretty five small potluck. yeah yeah we little potluck just... was the f- what was the food like what um, did the MPs bring did they have some good so quality they, they brought all of it so we, we we put we put labour on the mains we put Chris Bishop <laughs> on dessert and oh. he brought a bottle wine at his insistence and then um obviously gareth brought the salad because he's a greenie so naturally right and they all they all they all did well so we had paul brought a massive thing of butter chicken and a big big lasagna chicken on i'm not did he ask. make himself i'm not gonna comment on that. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then chris chris bishop bought a chocolate cake from the wine Mata cake oh, yeah. shop i think oh, or something good. yeah he, he wanted them to be shouted out and yeah. then um uh Gareth Hughes brought a um a uh, what was it a, a Southwest salad. It's like corn okay. chips and a salad. It was delicious, oh, wow. delightful. And then um I I brought a packet of chips and sort of set the mood. <laughs> Classic student. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so what uh, that was talking about housing. 
Yeah, we're talking about housing, housing in Wellington specifically. Yeah, is that a big issue for Vusa? Yeah, 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 man. Um, What's big issue for 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 us for our students, I should say? Um, Housing in Wellington is in a really weird place right now, um, where we are we're kind of getting closer and closer to to sort of breaking point. And I mean, I I wish I could say it's as worse as as it is now, as it is now, but it's not. It's going to get worse probably. Um, Prices are ridiculously high. The quality of accommodation is ridiculously low. And then the treatment of some of our students, um, and I imagine other tenants as well, young professionals and whatnot, um, by property managers and landlords is, is pretty poor too. So we're in, we're in a bit of a state at the moment, um, and it's going to require some pretty quick decision making to, to get us out of it. So this has been a big issue for quite a while. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I know it was high on, on my agenda when I was president in 2015. Yeah. It has been for quite a while. Yeah. Um, so I guess, how do you see, like, the role of student associations in terms of influencing that agenda? Mm. Like, do you think they're effective? They're pretty renowned for protesting in the mm. 70s and 80s, but how has that changed now? Look, I, th- I think a good, a good political advocate student association... Um, that, that, that performs its function as a strong representative body. Um, I think there's two elements to it. I think you, you have the campaigning element um, because you need to be engaging your students um, and you also need to be doing that in a way which isn't arrogant and which isn't um, sort of, you know, high, high mighty politics. It needs to be in a way which people can actually understand and relate to. Um, and that's sort of the idea of the potluck was, you know, let's bring the MPs down to our level, um, if you have to put it that way, or let's bring the MPs up to our level um, and, and, and kind of go from there and start the conversation there. So there's that sort of wider campaigning stuff. There's also the protesting stuff when necessary. You know, protesting should always be a tool, not the goal. Um, and then I think there's also the sort of the lobbying element too. So actually we go in there, we're having, we're having conversations with the university, we're having conversations with um, local politicians and then politicians from um, from parliament uh, as well. And we're participating in the, um, in the I guess, in the, the discussion, making sure that there is a, a student voice there because I think students, yeah, you can say student voice a hundred times and it sounds cheesy, but really it is absolutely vital because this is, this is where the, this is the next generation and it's a huge part of Wellington too. I, I briefly had a brief stint in, in student politics when I was at Auckland University, um, and it was around the time um, of voluntary student. Oh, um, gosh. I can blame you for that. Yeah, well, I didn't. I wasn't anything oh, to do with it. Auckland was has been voluntary since the nineties. Yeah, Auckland, Auckland's yeah. been. Yeah, um, it's got a sort of services agreement thing with the university, mm. so uh, it didn't seem like a. A huge deal, but I'm sure you know other people would think it would, it would be a big deal because you get. But like, how's it working in student politics now that's all voluntary? And like, is there a push to make it compulsory again or anything like that? Um, we haven't been we haven't been pushing for it. Obviously, it would be ideal. Um, I, th- I think any push would probably be happening sort of internally in those conversations with with politicians um, at, at least at this stage. Look, I think I think it kind of. Personally, I think it should be reversed, first of all. So I think we should repeal VSM. I think this should be compulsory. It's, it's literally just a typical union bashing bill. Um, with that said, I think it was necessary, to be honest. I think it put student associations on their asses, and it said, actually, you need a... Because there was a lot of wasted. Show that you can actually yeah. deliver stuff to students and be... Exactly. It forced us to engage with our students in a way which we didn't have to do previously. Yeah. And I, I also think it forced us to take our jobs a bit more seriously. I think that culture change... Um, ha- has happened and I think we're really now I think you know sh- the, the sort of student movement is mature enough to, to repeal um, VSM now and I think I mean we should be clear that it was never compulsory it was always 
an opt out thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You um, could you could have oh, yeah, a poll yeah, yeah, or whatever, yeah. and you could vote. On well, no, it's like every student could always choose not to be part of the the association. Oh, really? The default was that you're a member, but you still have to pay the fees. Did you? Or you, you opted out? Money. You didn't have to if you, if you opted out. Yeah. Oh, really? I think. Why would yeah. why, why wouldn't all students? You know, I imagine. <laughs> um, so I guess that comes to this this point of independence and and the the huge amount of power that universities have in that relationship and that's mm. been played out quite a lot with Critic, uh, you know, in mm. recent weeks with the cover of their student magazine. What do you make of of that? Of that? Oh sure. gosh, Katie from USA is gonna be mad at me um, if I talk about that, but I will anyway. Um, I, I think it was just I think it was a bit of bullshit. They should have just left it. I mean. <laughs> I, 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 like, first of all, I think there was a big mistake on the university's part, just in sort of the the way they did it. They should have just talked to Critic. They should have talked to USA. They should have reached out, or whoever did it, you know, should have reached out to them before they even did anything. Um, for me, that's sort of the worst bit. I think, you know, the sort of taking them out of the public library, I can, in my head, I can see, you know, a situation where that, that might have made sense, but the fact is they didn't, they didn't engage with USA. And um, that was a, a stupid thing to do. And um, in terms of the campus, um, yeah, in terms of the, you know, because they did take them off campus as well, didn't they? That was just dumb, full stop. I mean, mm. it was just, why would you do that? It's, you know. But I guess this goes to a wider issue of like, I mean, under law, universities are required to be the critic and conscience of society and of government, yeah. generally under the section in the Education Act. Um, Does it actually say that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, written into, I think it's section 45. And so, and that, that enshrines academic freedom. Uh, and I guess, you know, critic sort of sense, I mean, the University of Otago censoring critic, and it's happened in the past with mm. um, Victoria actually got an injunction against Salient back in the day when they got a, um, had this leaked report. This was back in um, Keithing, Matt Nippet, oh, Keithing's. Time. Um, oh, so it wasn't it was just for the, time. the title being shit fucker. It was also something to do with yeah. Well, they, they, they've got this, university fees. Or they've something got this like leaked, leaked report, and, and we're covering the story, which is a completely legitimate story to cover. That they were proposing to increase the fees by ten percent. Yeah. Um, and um, and typical Victoria fashion, they went to court for it. Mm. And um, the ir- irony in that story was that. Every other student magazine in the country ran with the story while um, Salient were out of the stands for like th- three days, so it completely backfired on. Yeah, these things normally do. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. I think with this Otago University situation, like the university has massively helped promote. Yeah. Um, oh, that cover's been everywhere now. Yeah, <laughs> everyone knows, everyone, everyone has seen that cover. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. tell you what. It's funny it's, you talk about the critic and conscience thing because I I often reflect on that, and I think that role is. I think I think we need to expand what that actually means. I mm-hmm. think it's not limited obviously just academic freedom but there's a sort of there's a misconception that when you think of the, the institution of a university you just think of the academics um, you know I guess professional staff the vice chancellor the council whatever but actually students are a key part of that they're actually a driving force for for, for, for the change so you, you've got the critic and you've got the conscience element which is you know the sort of we've just researched and found out that all this is wrong we've just done this paper whatever and then you've got the people who actually who, who push that and that is the that's the, the students and, and that's the role which they have um, so 
I think it's important to expand our understanding of what a university actually is. And do you think that's changing with the kind of like commercialization that's been happening to universities over the last couple of decades? I mean, like I've only been at uni for about because my third year, so sure. I couldn't comment on what happened decades ago. I think I think they're probably what, what from what I've been told, my understanding and my sort of looking into it is that it's a more competitive environment than it used to be. Um, and uh, that's, has, that seems to be sort of a, a bad thing because whenever you have competition, it always ends up um, with 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 money being what people are competing for. So, so in that sense, yeah, the, I, I would I would say that I would say that the, the, the element of that has changed. Um, and I, I don't think that's I think I think we can completely blame the universities. We can't say the universities need to change because they're also restricted by the way that they're funded and um, and and the way that they're, they're organised um, and yeah, through policy. Yeah. And this, this to me points to a fundamental problem with university funding models is that it's universities are incentivized to increase the number of students that they have, but overall there's a limited pool of students that you've got. So every individual university's target of their predicted mm. increase in students, when you add that all up, it's like where are they going to come from? Yeah. That's not going to work. And so you end up with universities spending marketing budgets competing amongst each other for this limited pool of students mm-hmm. that overall isn't going to eventuate. Mm. So I think, you know, essentially that funding model is pretty dumb. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, totally. Um, um, yeah, I, I guess I'll just sort of ask the, the free fees question. Um, so I think it's great. I think universities should be free. I think it should be free the whole way through. And I think we should also have a universal student allowance um, as well. Um, so that's all I can really say, I guess, like... Uh, I could explain. I could explain why it's That's great, a but the, controversial view. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. the reason is because you know, education in my mind is always a right, um, and it's 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 part of having a civilized society is making sure that everyone can access it, isn't it? Yeah. You know, at the end of the day. That's my that's my dad's my mum and dad's influence. Yeah, they always talk about civilized society. A key component of that is is free education because of well, rather access to education. And social mobility. Social mobility, is, which is the result, you know. Mm. That's true freedom. And we've got, um, I, I guess, on that, like, I always say the fees-free policy is a, is a useful tool in enabling greater access to university, but I, I also see that, you know, reducing the fees isn't the only thing that can be done. Yeah, totally. And I guess what else do you think needs to change to enable greater access to yeah. university? I think a big one is... I mean, obviously, there's all this sort of societal issues around renting and housing. But if you're sort of drawing in terms of specific tertiary policy, um, I think a universal student allowance is, is necessary. Um, uh, you know, our students shouldn't have to work and study at the same time. Studying is really fucking hard. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, and and, and it's, it is unrealistic to think someone can get a good education. Um, sorry, as good an education as they should be able to um, if they're working at the same time. The other element, uh, that also includes a postgraduate, in terms of immediate future, a postgraduate allowance. We are well overdue for a postgraduate allowance. We've been pushing for one, and obviously we're gutted it wasn't in the last budget. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. We'll keep pushing for it, um, and it better bloody be the next one. Mm. So I, I, I think also um, other changes is, is, is sort of the well-being changes that need to be made. So we're looking at how we actually assess our kids, because we're still assessing them and the um, and it's kids and students so obviously I was going a bit high school and primary school as well but how we assess our students because um, we're, we're still assessing them in the same basic colonial principle from ages ago which is if you're not up to this standard you're a piece of shit and probably shouldn't be taking this course 
and that that's just sort of it's naive it's pretty, it's ignorant it's arrogant um, and it's pretty short-sighted as well especially in a world which is becoming which is just, is constantly changing why are we still essentially using the same standard we did ages ago and that includes also the way we assess our kids or like specifically around ex- you know, exams as well which is completely archaic and just alright well um, thanks so much Marlon hey thanks for having me and, and my dad and Mary thank you for having me the, yeah, the backstory to this is Marlon's been, been. Um, Rick's been asking me to come on his show for right. a while now, and I finally had some free time this weekend. But my my dad was visiting, so I, I brought him along. Marlon Marlon's been asking me for for months to come on the podcast, <laughs> and I was drunkenly walking down Mount Vic last night and uh, bumped into Marlon, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah come on, come on tomorrow. But no, it's been it's been great having you on. Yeah, hey, have you on any time? I'll come on again, eh? Great. Uh, I'll, also, also, I needed somewhere to leave my bike and so I was down at Papatia in Rutherford House and got my keys to my bike lock and, and Marlon kindly opened up the Viewser office and let me put it in and return for coming on the podcast. Is this the same last night? No, obviously not. No, you different, 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 different night. Different night. Different, right, different, yeah, different week. It's been, been weeks of successful lobbying. Yeah. <laughs> Sign of a good shoot. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Uh, pretty pretty interesting um, thing, and I guess part of the the political coverage thing that we talked about there with Murray is around polling, and you wanted to talk briefly about yeah, opinion I missed polling. Talking about um, so yeah, one of the things I didn't mention at the start was there's been a bit of discussion with two polls that came out this week from from News Hub and and Call My Brunton TV TVNZ about the preferred Prime Minister poll. So there's and it, you know most polls have the party vote, um, and because that's been pretty static recently, with National a bit ahead of Labour and kind of Greens and New Zealand First in a similar position than they have been in, in, in post-election polls, um, there's been a lot of focus, I guess, on Simon Bridges' performance in the preferred Prime Minister poll, uh, and that you know he's around 10% or so. And a lot, I guess, has been made of that in the media, probably gone too far in in sort of suggesting that this might be a a huge issue for National. But I've been quite surprised by the backlash on Twitter. And um, Sam Warburton, who's... who's, um, He works at the New Zealand... Initiative, yeah, is that economist? Yeah, economist there, but he's a, he's a he's a left wing member of that largely right wing um, think tank, and but he was actually quite critical of the fact that we do have preferred pop prime minister polls because he thinks that they're not actually um, useful or relevant for anything. But in my mind, they actually are potentially they, they have some use. I think yeah, I think we live in an age where where personality to politics matters, and and the personality of the leaders. And we obviously, we obviously saw that in the last election, yeah. is that um, when you looked at the preferred Prime Minister poll, Jacinda, before she became leader, was in some of those preferred polls out polling Andrew Little, and Andrew Little was only at 10%. The, that was an indication, and that does show us that Jacinda was potentially going to be a popular leader. She did become a popular leader, and that was unquestionably important to Labour in that election. They went up massively mm. in, the, in the actual party mm. vote polls. Because of they had a popular leader, like you can't question that Jacinda didn't have an impact on the poll, didn't have an impact on the election, and the fact that she was going to have that impact 
was foreshadowed by these preferred prime minister polls and then confirmed once she became leader those she was like up at 30% in those preferred prime minister polls compared to most Labour leaders um, in the last eight years before that, which have been around 10, at most 15%. And so in my mind, that cl- clearly shows that there is some use to the preferred prime minister polls because leaders can have an influence on the outcomes of elections. Sure, you can be an unpopular Prime Minister, Jim Bolger, who had very low preferred Prime Minister rankings, but he still managed to win elections. Uh, and one of them was because of First Past the Post, probably, in 1993. But anyway, that's just my little dehaunt to get me started in a little <laughs> rant. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, it'll be interesting to see if Jacinda's popularity makes a difference in the Northcote by-election. Coming back to that, so tune yeah, in absolutely. to our live coverage on the 9th of June on our Facebook um, page, First Past the Pod. Support the podcast so we can make Season 2 even better at... Um, through Press Patron on our website. And, uh, yeah, tune in next week for Northcote by-election special. Yeah, please tune in, Facebook Live. I know all you guys are keen for some election night coverage. I'm going to make some graphics. I've figured out a way that we can make oh, brilliant, brilliant. Um, right. some live graphics right. with little, until, until everyone little photos of <laughs> their heads going along the thing. It would be like the modern-day worm. Brilliant. I love the worm. All right. Anyway. We'll be here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Students want to get into this room. Sorry, Vic. Can I keep it?